Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. This final Sunday of the month of January. It's Pro Bowl Sunday. Of course, one week away from the big game. And we have quite the guest in studio with us on our program today. Corey Stern is joining us. Corey is a partner and a civil attorney at Levy Konigsberg, LLP on the web at Levy Law, L-E-V-Y-L-A-W, that's all, it's one word, dot com. And he is joining us to talk with us about, well, we get into a couple of different things in the course of our discussion this hour of our program. Um, first of all, it's nice to have you join us. Good morning. Thank you so much. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to have you join us because the lead item that I want to start our discussion with is um, talking, you and I were talking a little bit before we... Um, came over to the studio here today because you have been involved in literally recovering tens of millions of dollars for clients and verdicts and settlements. Um, a lot of work in the area of um, sex abuse cases. Um, you have done some work in other areas. And I wanted to start our discussion today talking about the role that you have um, been in as lead counsel in this case in Flint, Michigan, that we've heard so much about. Because as I understand, you are in a position where basically at this point you're representing more than 2,500 kids. Correct. They were lead poisoned. Yes, sir. And this is by this is by the Flint River, is it? The Flint River was the source of the water. Uh, why they were poisoned, um, it, it can't be uh, pointed just to the Flint River as the cause. What happens is uh, when water flows through pipes, water has to be treated appropriately right. because pipes are made up of different types of metals, and if it's not treated properly, the water and the metal will, will combine, and the metal leaches to the water and then can be consumed by the end user. But yes, the Flint River was the source of the water. So... In this case, how far back does this go? I mean, um, we, we've heard about this over the past couple of years. I know you've been involved in this, I think you told me, since 2016. Um, but realistically, how far back has this been traced? So the, the crisis itself began in April of 2014 uh, when Flint, which had always received its its water from Lake Huron, mm -hmm. which was provided to the city of Flint by the city of Detroit. So Flint was purchasing its water from Detroit 
the Detroit water was coming to Flint pre-treated. So it was good water, very good water. But this started well before 2014 because, like, everything in politics, money and ego and, and, and power kind of all mesh together. And you have, you know, you have issues amongst politicians. And so in Flint, they felt like secondhand, second-class citizens to Detroit, and they had no say-so in the rates of the water. They had no say-so in the cost of the water. And so early on in, in, in 2011, 2012, the city tried to to find reasons and ways for a switch to occur so they would not be dependent on Detroit for their water. And in 2012, 2013, Flint was in debt. They were severely in debt. The city owed money and the city could not necessarily sustain itself financially. And the governor of Michigan at that point in time appointed what is referred to as an emergency manager in Flint. The Mm -hmm. governor has the power to do that for any city. Emergency manager came into Flint and tried to find financial ways that the city was, was spending money poorly to flip the switch and try and spend money better. And the first thing he saw, they needed about $13 million cut from the budget. Flint was spending a million dollars a month on water from Detroit. And so immediately he decided that he wanted to try and save that $12 million a month. There was another another water source that could be used for Flint, not the Flint River, but there was this conglomerate, which the acronym is the KWA. It's the Karagandi Water Authority. And Flint decided pretty early on they were going to switch from Detroit to the KWA. KWA wasn't going to be ready for three years. Detroit and Flint got into a little bit of a, a pushing match. Detroit cut off the contract with Flint for the water. Flint could have gone back to Detroit, but it would have taken a long-term commitment. Flint didn't want to make the commitment. Flint stuck with the KWA, and in the interim, for the two or three years it was going to take to construct the KWA, Flint went with the Flint River. And the Flint water plant, which had been in Flint for, for decades, was not equipped at the time to fully treat the water from the Flint River in the same way that the Detroit water was treated prior to getting to Flint. So most people read the story, and it's a long answer to a short question, but this started well before 2014 when Flint officials were dissatisfied with the relationship with Detroit. It started in 2012, 2013, when an emergency manager came in and tried to save money. And ultimately what happened was their ego money politics took precedent over what likely would have been better for the citizens of Flint. And they made the switch to the Flint River and everybody knows the rest of the story. Wow. And when you're talking about the impact, um, how this has played out, you know, you got started in this in... 2016. Here it is. It's January 2020. Where are we? So in terms of the litigation itself, we're, we're getting there. Uh, the, there's there's now two courts that, that have the litigation. There's a state court and a federal court, state judge, federal judge. You know, without getting into the nuancy nature of litigation and legal world, you know, the federal judge has cases that are related to essentially constitutional claims as well as other claims. The state court has cases that are related to 
um, more common claims that don't invoke the United States Constitution. The two courts are working together, essentially, and the federal judge has set the first group of trials for October of 2020. That may seem like a long time away, but any, you know, any lawyer or anybody that's ever been involved in litigation knows that from January, you know, the end of January to the middle of October, it's going to go by very, very fast. It's taken a long time to get here because when you're when you're dealing with governmental entities that you are claiming are at fault, the government's so different than you or me or private citizens or private companies. They're they're afforded significant protections that we are not afforded because their general job is to take care of the public welfare and courts don't want government officials or government entities to be wrapped up in litigation because they're really supposed to be doing things to help people. Right. And so in order to successfully litigate against them, you have to show that they've 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 committed acts or undertaking conduct that rises to a level that's far, far more difficult to reach than what it would require for you and I to be in litigation. And for the last four years, there's been so much litigation about that issue, about whether the government can even be in the case that it's taken a really, really long time just to get to the regular part of litigation where we're actually litigating the case. Wait a minute. There's been litigation about whether or not the government should even be in the case? That's been that's essentially been what the entire litigation has been about for the last four years. The United States Supreme Court last week um, de- determined by way of not determining anything. You know, the, what what happened was there were appeals that the, the lower courts, the trial court in 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 the, the eastern district of Michigan is the federal judge who has the case. OK, the judge determined that, yes, these government officials can be in the case that preliminarily their conduct appears to have risen to a level such that they should be in the case. The government folks have an absolute right to appeal that. And they did. And, and the court that hears that appeal is the United States circuit court the sixth circuit the sixth circuit upheld what the trial court did and then the government officials sought the united states supreme court to weigh in to overturn what the circuit court did just last week after all these years of litigation the supreme court declined to hear it which is essentially upholding what the circuit court did and does the supreme court have any responsibility to say why it is no they responsibility. Won't. They can simply decline. And, you know, oftentimes in very controversial issues, whether it's abortion or uh, gerrymandering or um, the Flint water crisis, you know, whatever the important issue might be that gets before them, they often rule without saying a thing. You know, if, if they up, if, if they decline to take a case, they are effectively giving credence to the court that the highest court that made the most recent decision. And that's what they did here. Wow. What would you say is the biggest misconception that people have about this water crisis? The first one, I mean, there are there are a number of them. The first one that comes to mind is that this is about race. Um, the race is a factor because you're dealing, Flint, Michigan, back in the 70s and 80s was one of the most um, populated um, affluent cities in Michigan. General Motors was there. Uh, they at one point had up to 240,000 residents of Flint. Today, there's about 80,000 because GM left, jobs went away, um, things, you know, jobs moved overseas or to Mexico, and and so the population has shrunk. 
And because of the the decline in the same type of employment that existed decades ago in Flint, it's become a relatively impoverished city. Mm-hmm. This this crisis is more about, from my perspective, the socioeconomic nature of the city than it is the racial composition. But anytime you're dealing with socioeconomic issues, race is a factor. So I think if you were to, you know, with a gun to people's heads who don't know much about the crisis, you said, why did this happen? Some people, many people would say, well, this is because this is a black community. And had this been a white community, this never would have happened. I would argue that had this been a more affluent community, this never would have happened. Those two things may go hand in hand in some places, but sometimes they don't. Hmm. The voice of Corey Stern, he is our guest in this hour of our program on the fan this Sunday morning. Corey is a partner, civil attorney at Levy Konigsberg, LLP. They're on the web at Levy Law, L-E-V-Y-L-A-W, that's all this one word, dot com. And he's, uh, as I said, going to join us for the entire hour of our program. We're going to get into a little bit more on this topic and into some other areas as well. Um, you know, so many different things that come to mind based on what you've said and shared with us. We'll take a pause in our discussion now, um, come back, touch back more on this. And I want to get into a couple of other um, things that you have been involved in over the years as we continue on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Corey Stern. Corey is in studio with us. He is a civil attorney and partner at Levy Konigsberg LLP and has joined us talking with us about a number of topics. We started off talking about his role as lead counsel in the Flint water crisis case, and we're going to get into talking about some other areas of discussion. I should mention the fact, too, that for the people who are listening to us, if you know, something that Corey says uh, strikes a chord, you want to join the conversation. Sometimes that takes us in interesting um, areas, assuming you're on point with what we're talking about. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Uh, one of the thoughts that I had is to talk, I guess, in a more general fashion about this whole thing of if somebody is poisoned, gets poisoned, from a legal standpoint, obviously, you know, you seek medical attention, but from a legal standpoint, what would you advise them to do? So m- most importantly, if it's a child, the way that lead affects a child age six and under is quite different than mm-hmm. the way lead would affect you or me. Um, child, children who are that age, their brains aren't completely formed yet. And so what lead does to a child is it brain poisons them. It literally... It's almost like if their brain is a forest, the lead is a fire that, you know, that, that burns a strip through the forest and it makes it more difficult for a child to wow. cognitively function in the same manner that he or she would function if they were not poisoned. And there's no cure for it. It's not, it's not like you can take medication and fix it. Mm-hmm. So if your child has been poisoned, the first thing to do would be um, you, can, you can use iron as a way to try and get the lead out 
of the body. Lead doesn't just disappear. It's it's an element. It, it's on the periodic table. So right. the same amount that existed 400 years ago exists today in various different forms. So iron helps force lead out of a child's body, but once a child's lead poisoned, he or she's lead poisoned. If it's an adult, same thing, seek medical help. But for adults, the, the, the amount of lead that's required to have a, a serious impact on adults is much, much larger than it is on a child. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I mentioned earlier that you've been involved in as well is dealing with some of these sex abuse allegations and cases. Um, You've been involved in winning settlements in uh, many cases for uh, your clients. What has that been like? I mean, it seems... As a layperson, and I hope this isn't an overstatement, it almost seems like there's a never-ending number of potential, for lack of a better term, I'm going to say, victims. Yeah, it's the most um, – I mean, I have two kids. I have, I have a, a 10- and 11-year-old son, each uh, two boys. And um, there's never been – I mean, the Flint water crisis has been a, a case – of, of epic magnitude in my life, but I don't think any case I've handled, including the Flint litigation, has had as big of an impact on me personally as handling some of these sex abuse cases because, number one, the depth and breadth of how many people have been sexually abused in their childhood is staggering, overwhelming, and shocking. And the fact that on a daily basis, I or other folks in my office take tens of calls, sometimes hundreds of calls, depending on, you know, what's going on with legislation. It's it is extremely sad and enlightening at the same time on a professional level. It's an amazing it's amazing work because when when someone's sexually abused as a kid, as they get older, just like everything that happens to us in our life, that event or series of events impacts significantly sort of the trajectory of people's lives. Whether you're a young boy who then goes on to struggle with intimacy or struggle with how to parent properly, or even if you want to be a parent because you're scared of what happened to you might happen to your child, mm-hmm. or because you're intelligent enough to know that many abusers have been abused themselves and out of a, a fear of what might you become if you were to have a child. Um, there's emasculating nature to it. There's questions of sexuality associated with it. There's fear. And the older people get who get further away from the abuse, the more difficult it becomes because they become somewhat enlightened and start to look back on their lives and rightly or wrongly trace many of the things that went wrong to one incident or one series of incidents. So to be able to get them money. I mean, all I can do as a civil attorney is get people money. And it sounds callous and crass, but the reality is that's all I can do. Oftentimes the money that a sexual abuse victim ends up getting as a result of a lawsuit or a settlement or a verdict, it's never enough. It's not like the victim will say, well, I'm so glad that I was able to recover one and a half million dollars. And man, I'm glad that happened to me. There's no amount of money that would ever make someone feel that I've ever worked with as though it was a good thing that happened. But when they do get that money, 
there's a there's a feeling I think of vindication and um, a breath that is taken, a different type of breath that's taken in that moment than any breath they've ever taken before, because they feel as though, at a minimum, someone's honoring the terrible experience that they had. And the other thing about these cases that's just amazing and hard for me to have believed when I first started doing the cases, but I see now routinely, when someone first reaches out to me, generally, there's this fear of doing anything about it. There's sort of this 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 moment where they're not sure they want to take the next step forward or put one foot in front of the other. And then once they decide that they're going to, their emotions change so often from fear and shame to anger, frustration, and that changes then to sort of ownership and power. And to watch a transition for someone who walks in and is telling a story that they think is shameful and sad and they wish they didn't have to tell, to then seeing someone near the end who feels powerful in the process, it sounds cliche, it sounds somewhat cheesy, but for a lawyer, I mean, that's all you, you know, anybody who ever becomes a lawyer, I don't think they start out wanting to bill hours or work for a corporation. They, they want to do good. I mean, most lawyers read To Kill a Mockingbird or they saw, you know, my cousin Vinny, whatever it is, and, and they want to become a lawyer for all the right reasons. And this type of work, I think, makes most lawyers who do it feel like they are actually doing the type of work that they set out to do when they were young puppies in the business. Mm. The Child Victims Act. What does that legislation do in terms of um, protecting, I guess, sex abuse victims? So the Child Victim Act, first of all, is a is a New York State law that right. was passed in um, in February of two thousand and nineteen. Right. And it went into effect in August of 2019. Many states around the country are enacting laws that are very similar. But specific to that act, in New York State, before February of 2019, any victim of sexual abuse had at the latest until age 23 to ever do anything about it in terms of filing a lawsuit. That That's an unfortunate thing because... Most victims of sexual abuse don't even know the effects or feel the effects or recognize the effects of what the abuse has on them or has has had on them until way later in life past age 23. And so you're asking people to file a lawsuit before a period in time where they probably even knew that they should or had one. What the Victims Act does, number one, is starting when it was enacted in in February of, of 19, any victim of sexual abuse who is now sexually abused they have until the age of 55 to file a lawsuit. So if, God forbid, something happened to one of my kids or your kids or anybody's kids, they now have until age 55. The other thing it did, which is what really has gotten the most publicity, is it created a window to look back so that any victim whose time had passed, whose 23-year-old time had just gone away, and now they're 45 or 55 or 85 or 100 they have one year from August of 2019 through August of 2020 to file suit. And so there's a catch-all provision that gives everyone the chance. And then once that expires, anyone who has been abused more recently has until the age of 55 to mm-hmm. file suit. Mm-hmm. So potentially, what does all of this mean for, you know, very often we've heard the Catholic Church uh, come up in these discussions. Does anybody have any idea of what this ultimately may mean for the church? 
So, the, you know, the, there's a lot of answers to the question. I mean, what does it mean financially, fiscally? What does it mean based on perception of the church? I, I don't really think the perception part will change all that much. I think there's been a growing number of, of incidents and admissions and over the course of transition between one pope to another pope. You know, I think most people now today in our country feel like there has been pervasive abuse amongst the Catholic Church. Financially, most people... Most people, I don't, I don't think, realize it. I mean, the church is a business. It, it, I, it, some, some Catholics may not like to hear that, and I, it's not a. Uh, I'm not saying that to discredit the fundamental beliefs that Catholicism um, espouse. You know, people espouse to, but they have more money than God, but they're an entity of God, and so you've got you've got like any corporation you've got little subparts of the corporation you've got these various dioceses that sort of everybody answers to the vatican and the vatican has you know it's like a chart that you could the vatican's at the top and then you've got all of these dioceses most of the dioceses are in many ways relying on the vatican but but they're also independently financially stable or unstable and so you have you have certain dioceses like certain companies that now can declare bankruptcy and they're finding creative financial ways to limit their liability to many of these victims. And when you start to see dioceses in upstate New York or even in, in, in Metro New York choosing to file bankruptcy or at least exploring the idea of filing bankruptcy, it does two things. One, it, it evidences how pervasive this is because for a religious entity to consider filing bankruptcy over nothing more than allegations of sexual abuse says that the abuse is pervasive and widespread. The other thing it does is it really throws some water on victims who who would like to proceed because now after all these years, they finally have their foot in the door and they're able to kind of try and get the justice that they want or feel vindicated or or, or just file a lawsuit so that they can be compensated it makes them more hesitant because what if you go through that entire process only at the end to have an entity that doesn't have the wherewithal for a judgment because they've put all of their debts into a into a bankruptcy. So per- perception-wise, I don't think much has changed other than now people may see the financial moves that are being made by the church um, as even more um, indictable, uh, you know, philosophically mm-hmm. than just the abuse itself. But what it really does is it creates a difficulty for individuals to move forward with their litigation. And is there more of a tendency to move forward with litigation or to settle? I mean, when when does, I guess, settling out of court become the better option? And the other aspect of that is how tricky does that kind of negotiation get? So I, I don't think that the bankruptcy part of this plays as much of a role in whether someone should settle or not as as one may think. I think the more tricky part of whether to try and settle a case or move forward with a case with full-out litigation, it's it's a lot more dependent on the individual. And these are, you know, it's not like someone T-bones you at a red light in a car and you want to file a lawsuit and you, you've become a paraplegic or mm-hmm. you've had major issues. Mm-hmm. There's no shame for most people in, in putting their name on a lawsuit that says, you know, I had $400,000 in medical bills. I can't walk. You right. know, you, you owe me. Right. But when you've got to put your name or potentially be exposed publicly to saying that when I was 10 and 11 and 12, 
I was forced to, you know, perform oral sex on a male and I'm mm-hmm. a male. You know, if you're if you're a 70 year old man today, you grew up in a generation where, you know, being gay and being being out was like very much shunned upon. Not that not that whoever that happened to is gay, but there's a there's a connotation for the older person in the world that by doing that, they should feel shame amongst their peers And so for someone like that who feels that, who may think that everyone's going to judge him, even though I don't think today that's actually true, he may be more inclined to say, I'm settling this case no matter what because I never want my name on it. Some people, they they grow up feeling this or, or, or having this done to them or something like it. And they're just a different person, and they want to own it. They want their name on it. They want to fight. They don't want to settle. They want their case to go to trial. They want to be a change for other victims. Neither one of those two hypothetical individuals is better than the other, but when you're thinking about as a lawyer crafting a settlement or a strategy to try and resolve it, you have to really more than anything in these type of cases take specifically the personality of the individual who's come your way and what's best for them, what's best for their family. Hold that thought. Corey Stern, who is partner, civil attorney at Levy Konigsberg, our guest on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. NFL previews along at uh, 7 this morning. It's Sports Edge at 7.30, Morning Lion at 8.30, and uh, Football Sunday is along at 9 o'clock with Melusis and Deal here on The Fan. Uh, We are in a discussion with Corey Stern. Corey is a partner and civil attorney at Levy Koningsberg LLP. He has joined us um, in studio on our program We've been talking about a number of things. We start off talking about his role as the lead counsel in the Flint, Michigan um, water contamination uh, case. And we talked a little bit about the uh, sex abuse suits that have um, uh, times dominated the news in uh, this country as well. And it's a couple other areas where I want to go in uh, discussion. One of the things I wanted to ask you, though, before we continue in talking a little bit about this uh, topic of um, sexual abuse is let's backtrack. I didn't ask you something in the very beginning of our discussion, and I'm kind of curious about this myself. What was it that first drew you to the field of law? Well, my, uh, I grew up, my parents were divorced. My dad was a, a history teacher. My mom was an insurance adjuster and my stepdad was a detective. Um, I, I never had anybody in my family that were, you know, I wasn't a son of lawyers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a seventh or eighth grader reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, I thought Atticus Finch was like the greatest person I'd ever read about. Um, my dad, as a history teacher, he taught in a school called Satellite East, which was a gifted school in the inner city. And I would go sometimes with him to to his school when I was young and he was like the only white guy in the school. Everybody else was black. I remember him taking me and his class to see the movie Glory. Um, you know, Denzel Washington, mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman. Mm-hmm. And my dad was just a big kind of civil rights educator. And then my stepdad, who was detective, he was after the Howard Beach incident, you know, in the 1980s in, in Queens. He was one of the first detectives that was assigned to the Bias Crimes Bureau. 
And somewhere in my childhood, I think between my dad and my stepdad, I I grew this sort of affinity for civil rights. And I mean, you know, I was a relatively privileged white kid who, you know, shared time between Long Island and Staten Island. But I was raised in, in houses where there was this sort of justice bend, whether I even realized it or not, or they talked about it or not. And then when I read To Kill a Mockingbird, um, something in me, it was the first time I ever thought about being a lawyer. I didn't know if I could because I didn't have anybody that was. I didn't know if I was smart enough or, you know, hardworking enough. But that was really the, the moment in time where I wanted to become one. And then as I got older, because my mom was an insurance adjuster, I probably ended up doing it just to spite her, you know, to, to uh, she's, she's, she's really proud of me now. But, you know, I think the combination of those three things just, just sort of put me on track. Do you recommend the profession? Hundred percent. I mean, I hear, I hear lawyers, even some of my best friends who I went to law school with. You know, there's a lot of complaints. Oh, my job is this or that, or the hours are terrible. I mean, my my dream when I was a kid was to either become like the general manager of the Mets, or <laughs> you know, or or some other thing in sports. When I went away to the University of Georgia for college and for law school, I thought my dream job would be the athletic director of the university, and I could say now. You know, there's nobody that could call me to offer me any type of job in the world that would lead me to take myself out of the job that I do now. I I mean, the coolest thing about it is every day I can call my mom or go home and tell my wife and kids what I did all day long and know that they'd never be disappointed in me or shamed by what I do, but instead they'd feel proud. Not because I'm so great at it or there's anything necessarily special about me. But the type of work that I get to do is so impactful on people's lives. And that may sound like hyperbole or, you know, just kind of some frou-frou lawyer talk. But the reality is, is I think all of us want to feel good every day about what we do. And I don't know another area of, of employment or a job that I could have that would let me feel that good. And so for people who are interested in it, don't believe the stories you hear about what a nightmare it is. It's an area of, of employment where you can kind of create your own your own path and do the things that are important to you. So I highly recommend it. Mm. So if University of Georgia calls and they say they've got this position for an athletic director. Don't call. Okay. All right. I mean you could call, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna take the job. <laughs> All right. Back to the topic of this um, topic of sex abuse cases. A natural question coming up is um, this ongoing um, set of legal proceedings in the Harvey Weinstein case. Okay, uh, obviously this is very much in the news and is going to be. What do you think of how the proceedings have taken place thus far, and is what we as lay people are seeing, hearing, reading? Is this fairly common? So it's pretty uncommon to have such a high-profile trial taking place at any point in time because if it was common, then there wouldn't be so much coverage about it. You know, when we see coverage at this level, it typically means that something's happening that doesn't normally happen. You saw it with OJ. You saw it with, you know, the Bill Clinton impeachment. You're seeing it with the Trump impeachment. You're seeing it with the Harvey Weinstein trial. Not to put all those things on the same level, but they're unique, and that's why there's there's media everywhere. Um I think the proceedings themselves themselves are going as I would expect. I mean, they were able to get a jury relatively quickly despite the high-profile nature of the case. They're proceeding 
pretty quickly. You know, they're 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 the judge is making rulings in real time. Um, you know, witnesses are being called to the stand. The jury's been impaneled, and you know, so so from a, a, a pure litigation standpoint, if anything, I think that the case is moving quicker than a case that was not as high profile would otherwise move. I think it's important to the judge to get it done. I think it's probably important for for the the Weinstein team to get it done. Uh, and I think it's important for the prosecution to get it done because these are high profile victims who or alleged victims who are now having to testify and not just testify in open court, but testify in a way that's so public that their shame of what happened to them or their doubt about wanting to testify is being broadcast sometimes in real time. In terms of the proceeding themselves, I'm, themselves, I mean, I think that there's clearly strategies on both sides. You know, the defense wants to paint all of the victims or alleged victims in a way where they're not really victims. They're just con- consenting adults who maybe now either regret the, the consent that they gave back in the day or they're looking to get paid in some form or fashion. Um, and the prosecution wants to to present these folks as as people who have no reason to do this, no reason to come forward. They they gain nothing from it other than the feeling of doing the right thing. Um, you know, there's there's little things about the the the. It's more of a show in many ways. I mean, I see him walking into court, you know, with a walker looking disheveled. I think part of the the strategy there is to make a jury believe how could this kind of frail old man who looks like someone who could could be homeless mm-hmm. essentially could do these things and be so powerful over these young strong women who all show up appearing as if you know they, they've really got it together and they're they're you know many of them are actresses so how it how it ends i mean there's always twists and turns you only really need one person on a jury to to not believe that someone's guilty and you can either get a hung jury or potentially a not guilty verdict. Um, you know, I'd be pretty surprised if that actually happened in this case, but I think the, I think the proceedings themselves are going as they, as they should. And, and in fact, maybe quicker than I would have expected. How difficult is it to impanel a fair and impartial jury in a case like this though? Because I mean, this, it would seem naturally, most people would, well, one would think most people would know some aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard. I, I mean, I, I clerked for a judge when I finished law school before I became a, you know, a, a, a private lawyer for one year. You know, it was a pretty cool thing to get to do and a big honor. And the first criminal trial that I ever got to s- sit through and watch, because most judges handle civil and criminal cases. Um, they were going through the jury selection process. And before they start asking individual questions, the judge asked the entire jury, is there anybody on this jury that feels already that they can't be fair and impartial? Mm-hmm. And some, some guy raised his hand in front of about 60 people. And it was very surprising because I guess the judge had never seen that before. And she said to the guy, you know, what's your, what's your issue? Do you, know the, do you know the defendant? He said, no. He said, do you know any of the lawyers? He said, no. And she said, well, why do you not believe you might be able to be fair and impartial? And he said, well... The guy's here. He must have done something wrong. And so, you know, what that said to me was that, you know, I realized in that moment that the criminal defendants who show up in court, you know, they're like 20 point underdogs just just from the beginning. So from a general sense, to get a fair and impartial jury is really difficult, even if nobody knows who the heck you are. But then when you bring in sort of the coverage that's occurred, and the same could be said about the Flint crisis, you know, it's going to be very hard to get a jury in Flint for the defendants, even though I don't really care because I'm I'm suing them. 
But with Harvey Weinstein, there's nowhere in this country where he could go and get a more fair trial than he's going to get in the Southern District of New York because the coverage has been nationwide. In many ways, that gives the defense a little bit of an advantage because most judges are going to give them a lot more leeway in questioning prospective jurors because they want to ensure that the case ultimately is unappealable, is is concludes throughout the process in the right way. So is it hard? Yes. Is it impossible? No. And And the other part of it that's important to note is I've tried, you know, 50 cases over the course of a career. No matter how much you think as a lawyer that this juror has a bend towards this or this juror feels this way, most jurors, when they actually get in that box and they take that oath, no matter what their preconceived notions are, their biases are, it's a different feeling because you put your hand up and you you you, you take an oath and the judge tells you how serious it is and most people really do try to to fulfill that obligation in a way that I would want them to if I were the defendant. So there's going to be a lot of talk about how it's not fair. And if he loses, they're going to say, oh, the jury was biased. If he wins, they'll say the jury was great. But ultimately, I think most jurors on most juries want to do their duty. They take it seriously. And I think he'll be able to get a fair trial. Is it fair the comparisons that come out at points – Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby. I think it's fair. I mean, th- these are two very powerful men in in Hollywood who, for years, there were whispers about them, about um, their their, you know, the things that they did to folks who they had power over. Um, the similarities about using their power to at least convince or try to convince young women. Uh, that they can help them with their careers mm-hmm. and in exchange for that, you know, potentially get sexual gratification somehow, even though, you know, rape and assault don't really equal sex. Um, I think there are some similarities there. I think that in the Cosby case, he, his his modus operandi had more to do with, you know, using alcohol and, and drugs in ways to have his, his victims succumb to the things he wanted Weinstein, it appears at least the allegations are that he used his power, his his perceived power, without necessarily drugging or uh, or, or using alcohol to to get them to do things. But overall, men with power in an industry where power is important, utilizing that power to take advantage of folks who just wanted to make something of themselves, it's extremely similar. We could definitely wind up with some legal precedents being set as a result of this case. Absolutely. I mean. These are also allegations that, you know, from from many, many years ago, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, you're, you're, you're dealing with, you know, the Constitution affords people the right to due process. Right. And it's very difficult the longer you get away from whatever the incident is that you're being accused of. It's really, really hard to provide somebody with due process because witnesses lose memory or sometimes they die. In some of these sexual abuse cases beyond Weinstein, you have a 70-year-old man or woman who was abused when they were nine. If they were abused by somebody in power, that means the abuser was was probably at least 10, 15, 20, 25 years older than them and is probably dead now. Right. The nurses at a hospital don't, don't exist anymore. And so you really do, as a country, want to protect the rights of the accused because until proven guilty— they're innocent. 
And, you know, I'm not I'm not shedding any tears necessarily for Harvey Weinstein. But if we're going to be worth the paper that our country's rules are written on, we have to do everything we can to afford someone like him that right to due process. The voice of Corey Stern, who is partner, civil attorney at Levy Konigsberg, LLP, on the web at Levy Law, L-E-V-Y-L-A-W, all is one word, dot com. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. The honor was mine. Wonderful discussion we have had. NFL preview is along in moments here on The Fan. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.